Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Before I get started, just uh, I want to make a quick announcement. Uh, I'm starting with this podcast. I'm making a little change to when I post them. I had been posting them on the 1st and roughly the 16th of each month, uh, but I've decided instead to change that to the 1st and 3rd Monday of each month. Anyway, on today's podcast, I'll be interviewing author Kathy Appelt. Uh, we'll be talking both about her newly released YA novel, Angel Thieves, and we'll be talking about one of her favorite kids' books, uh, the middle grade novel, The Grand Plan to Fix Everything, uh, which was written by, by Uma Krishna Swami. This was a new book to me, which is always nice to come across. Now, for a while, I've been starting off the podcast with a poem I found. Uh, usually, I'll scour the poetry books in the children's book section of my local library and find a few that seem like pretty good poems. Uh, today, I'll be doing something a little bit different. At the time I'm recording this, about a week will have passed since the news of Toni Morrison's death. Toni Morrison, of course, is the Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning author of such great novels as The Bluest Eye, Jazz, Song of Solomon, and Beloved. Less well-known, or at least less well-known to me, anyway, was that she wrote a number of picture books with her son Slade Morrison, who himself died at a very young age in 2010. And what I'm going to read is an excerpt from the book, Please, Louise. Uh, this was illustrated by Chandra Strickland. It's about a young girl finding comfort in the books in the library. Please, Louise, please, please, things are not always what they seem. If you are sometimes lonely or sometimes sad, know that the world is big, but not so bad. The sky is gray now, but not for long. After the rain, birds break into song. Please, Louise, please, please, don't scurry too fast and miss the music of the street. You may be surprised by who or what you meet. You frown at the yard where that old car is parked and shrink from the sound of a little dog's bark. Is that house really haunted? Or does it just need care? And why not imagine the joy that used to be there? Is that a junkyard or dangerous trap where ghosts live and monsters nap? Sheets of rain, black clouds thunder. Hurry, find a roof to get under. Is that a bird of prey from which you'd better run? Or an eagle of gold when touched by the sun? Here is shelter from the storm. In this place, you are never alone. These books are loyal friends helping you explore. Dream, discover, think, and learn much, much more. Imagination is an open door. Step in here and let it soar. My guest today is Kathy Appelt, uh, author of several books for children and finalist for the National Book Award in Newberry. Her books include such titles as The Underneath, Keeper, and The True Blue Scouts of Sugar Man Swamp. And this year, in 2019, she published her YA novel, Angel Thieves. You can find Kathy's website at www.kathyappelt.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Kathy. Oh, thank you for having me. As I mentioned, uh, you have a, a new book out this year, a YA novel called Angel Thieves, uh, which I did have a chance to read and enjoyed. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that book is about for readers who haven't had a chance to read it yet? Well, it's essentially three stories. It's opens with the story of a boy who with his father have a have a a um, career i guess you would call it in 
the theft of graveyard angels. Uh, so they steal cemetery angels for the black market. And um, then there's another story that, that goes back in time. The, the thievery story is current, it's modern day. But there's a second story that goes back in time um, about a slave, a woman who was enslaved in Houston and is on the run to Mexico as part of a loosely organized Southern Underground Railroad. And then there's, a, there's another thread of the story that features an ocelot that has been poached, essentially, and is caged and is um, caged. <laughs> that's, that's um, you know, in, in her dilemma. And so those are the three primary threads of the story. There are other, you know, there are other threads, actually. There's a, also a girl in this story that plays a lot, who plays a large role. And um, she is a contemporary character too so um so yeah so it's all these interweaving threads that take place along the banks of the buffalo bio that runs straight through the heart of houston and what was the inspiration for writing this book where did you get the idea that of the story well a couple of things the first was that um several years ago I was with my grandmother in Houston. I grew up in Houston, first of all. And so even though I haven't lived there in quite some time, I've really longed to write a story set there. So several years ago, I was with my grandmother and we were attending a funeral. And it was actually the funeral of her brother. And she was in her 90s at the time. She was one of seven children and her brother passed away. And so... Uh, we were at at the it was a graveside funeral at this very old cemetery in Houston, actually one of the oldest cemeteries in Houston, and it's nudged up right on the banks of the bio, and it was a cold, just rainy, kind of dismal day. And as we were pulling out, as we were driving back through the cemetery to get back on the road, I had this feeling that something was definitely wrong, and. Um, so when we got to the gate, I asked my grandmother if we could drive back through, and she said, sure. So we drove back through the cemetery, and I went quite slowly. And what I realized is that from my window where I was driving, every angel that I saw, every angel statue was decapitated. <laughs> None of them had their heads. And so it was just the eeriest, creepiest feeling. And after afterwards i i couldn't shake the feeling that maybe i maybe i wasn't seeing it correctly or you know <laughs> imagining it or something so a, a couple of weeks later i asked my husband if we could drive back through if we could go down to houston and drive you know drive through and and just to check and 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 he brought his camera with him and sure enough all the angels were headless and and so that set me on the path to researching the theft of graveyard statuary and it turns out there is a large or i don't know how large it is but there is a black market for a particularly carved statuary um concrete you know cement that's been molded there's i mean there's not so much um, desire for that but um but for those uh statues and urns and crosses and other symbols and whatnot um that are that are placed on graves, uh, there, there's an actual market for those. And, and, and it's a lucrative market. And so 
But the other thing that piqued my curiosity was the question, you know, who would do it? Who, what kind of person steals statuary? And of course, grave robbing, you could make the case that that's been around for forever. In fact, some people, some people call it the second oldest profession (laughs) is grave robbing. But, um, but I actually wrote a poem about it and it was published in a small book that came out years and years ago about a boy who, you know, who stole the heads off of graveyard angels. And so, so that, that story has kind of been with me for quite, quite a long time. And, um, that, that was the inspiration for that part of the story for the uh, one that features AXA, who is the woman who is enslaved. That story was based on a true story that based on a real woman who lived, you know, in pre-Civil War, Texas. Um, I, I knew right away that I was going to set the story along the bio because it it flows through the heart of Houston and you know was largely settled there at the at the confluence of the of the of a couple of bios. But um, so in my research on the bio, I came across just a small anecdote about a woman named Sylvia Roth who was enslaved um, to a ship's captain named John Roth, and um, he, you know, had, he had six children by her, and when he passed away, he set her free, but, but the catch was that he didn't set their children free, or at least their, their little daughters. They had two older sons together, and, and he did give them their freedom, but uh, the daughters, the small daughters, he didn't, he didn't release, and so as a parent, I just couldn't get past the question of how 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 are you free if your children aren't? And of course, you know, I asked that question well before all of the uh, skirmishes and all all of the issues that are going on at the border now. And 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 so, you know, I, 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 in some ways, the question has even more significance now. But the you know the real truth is if you if you really study Texas history or American history you know you'll find that we've we've been taking children from their parents for a long time uh, it's never really stopped so you know as a parent um, I just I couldn't help but you know consider that question and so with that story I. Um, well, first, let me also say that I'm like an eighth generation Houstonian, so I have relatives that go back, way back to the very beginnings of Houston. So my relatives would have been in Houston at the same time that Sylvia Roth was there, and so I, you know, I I felt compelled to really look at the history of the times of the 1840s when Texas was its own republic. And one of the big things that I discovered is that uh, Texas, you know, fought for its independence from Mexico, but it wasn't independence for everybody. And a large issue, a large reason why they they fought for for separation from Mexico is that in 1829, Mexico made slavery illegal. So if Texas had remained a part of the Mexican territory, it would also have had to release its slaves. And so, 
the Alamo, which is kind of like Texas creation myth, right? (laughs) All those, quote, heroes of the Alamo were all slaveholders, and they were all fighting to keep their slaves. And so, you know, the sad truth is that if Santa Ana had been even a little bit better, (laughs) a better general, maybe a better strategist, things might have been different. It's hard to say. But um, but so, you know, so Texas was able to keep its slaves. And the two cash crops were sugar and cotton, which were extremely labor intensive. And so, you know, they wanted those slaves for that. And so one of the things that I discovered, too, was that during those times in the East and North, East, there was the the famed Underground Railroad, but what a lot of people don't know is that there was a a Southern Underground Railroad, and if a person could make it to Mexico, could cross that river and get into Mexico, they they were free. They could be free, and so that river has, for such a long time, been you know a uh, a border for or a, a you know, a symbol of crossings and, and, you know, depending on where you are in history, <laughs> which direction you go will indicate, you know, what your status is. And so one of the reasons I chose the Ocelot to be part of the story was because she is a citizen of the border, you know, that she's, she lives right along that river. That's, and there's, there's only, I mean, there's a refuge down there and, along the border called Laguna Atascosa and the the last remaining wild ocelots in Texas are there and there's only about 50 of them. So they're at super risk, um, especially if that stupid wall goes up. So, so, you know, the, the book for me was a, a lot of learning and as a, a lifelong Texan, these are, these are things I never read or heard of in school. And, you know, <laughs> Uh, I I took Texas history at least three three times in my in my life. You know, I had to take it in junior high and again in high school and again in college, and none of that was ever um, ever imparted to me. <laughs> so I just I I felt compelled as a generational Texan, you know, as somebody whose family has been here for a long long time, to at least shine a light on a, on a truer history. And, um, and so, so that's a very long, long (laughs) answer to your question. That's okay. That's okay. So, so, yeah. Well, I know that's, that's, that's a, that's a fascinating, um, uh, look into exactly, you know, the, you know, all the things you were thinking about and that went into uh, creating this story. And I know part of your research, um, as well was looking into the Buffalo, uh, bio for this book because mm-hmm. I know setting uh, for a lot of your books is very important. It's not just the background, but it's uh, it's an integral part of the story, and it's certainly true for this one. Uh, actually, the, the the setting is character mm-hmm. in in a way and a part of the story. And I'm just wondering, as part of the research into the uh, the bio, did it? Um, well, you, you sort of talked about that a little bit about how it impacted um, the actual the, the, the history, but the the setting itself, how does it? Uh, does it impact your uh, just learning about the actual physical setting of the of, of right. the river? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think setting as a as an element of a good story is is sometimes overlooked or shortchanged. And 
for me, um, and in this book in particular, the the bio itself became um, like the witness. I think I think of her, I think of the bio as the witness. You know, she was there back in time. She's there now. Um, I mean, you could make the case that the water changes through history, I guess, but um, but maybe not. I mean, this, the critters, the flora, the fauna, all all have been there. Uh, some some for quite a long time and um and so the landscape i think has something to say and um and depend you know it 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 shapes a story i mean the the uh, wildlife the kind of wildlife that's there or was there at one time um you know offers up a story all by itself and so so i think it's important really to take all that into into consideration and um and so yeah and so when i was you know for me my my knowledge of the bio aside from the destruction that she's capable of um was limited really to you know the the settlement by the allen brothers who are a pair of brothers that staked their claim when when texas separated from mexico you know they thought it'd be great to have a city named after sam houston and so they staked a claim right on the confluence of these two bios, which is, it was really, I mean, technically it's a marsh. I mean, Houston is maybe a hundred feet above sea level. It's very low lying and um, it's very, you know, not much um, slope. And so the reason the bios are called bios is because unlike a river, they really, really don't flow very quickly. So, um, so that brings with it all kinds of issues like yellow fever and just, you know, the, rampant um, foliage that's hard to control and just marshy land that you know that's hard to build on and whatnot so so you know it's not like a mountain mountainous valley or a, a sea, even a seashore it's you know it's dense and foliage and and all of that so but um, for myself I had to look and see who was there before the Allen brothers. And clearly there were other people there before the Allen brothers. <laughs> there were lots of indigenous people that settled along those, those waterways. And, um, and so, so it's not like history started when they planted their flag and claimed it. So there was that too. And um, anyway, a lot, years and years ago, I had a poetry teacher that said the best thing that a writer could ever do for themselves was to learn the names of the plants and trees and whatnot in the area that you're writing about. And so I guess I just expanded on that. <laughs> I don't know, but I, but I do find um, the landscape to be really, really important. I had a question about. I was I was curious about the 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 construction of this novel because it's it's several narrators and even narrators mm-hmm. in different historical times. And so and they're all connected. I mean, they have separate stories, but also connected by a, a narrative thread. And I'm just wondering, in the process of writing this book. Um, how you went about it was it sort of did you write it as sort of the book progresses that it skipped from character to character did you write each character and sort of then mix it i was just wondering what the the process of (laughs) that you actually undertook um or did it sort of developed as you were writing i would say it developed as i write wrote i i i would you know write a scene for for one character and then take a break from that character and think okay well what's going on with this other character now (laughs) um 
Yeah. One of these days, I swear I'm going to write a story that goes straight from point A to point B. (laughs) And I'm going to shock myself. I think about writing in small, significant scenes. That's that's how I write. I'm I started out as a poet and then, uh, you know, I've written short stories too, and I've written a lot of picture books. And so it seems like my natural, just my natural tendency is to end everything at the bottom of page three. (laughs) It's like I get to the bottom of page three and I'm like, okay, now time to wrap this up. And so, um, so it took me forever to write a novel actually with underneath um, was my first novel And um, I realized that if I was ever going to write one, it was going to have to be in short, short scenes. And so I call I call them SSSs, short, significant scenes. And um, and so I used just the chapter changes largely for transitions. And um, the, the other thing about writing like that in short chunks is that they're relatively easy to move along around. So. Whenever I'm drafting, especially, the chronology is not always set until right kind of towards the end, if that doesn't, if that makes sense, because I'm, I'm constantly kind of shifting things around to, uh, to make, you know, to, to get the, the biggest impact out, out of a particular scene. So, yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of neurotic or eccentric, I guess, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's how I do it. Um, nothing scientific, actually. Yeah, I was I was just curious just uh, what the process because I know everybody has their own particular process, so I was just mm-hmm. curious how that developed and so it's sort of more of an mm-hmm. organic thing, and then you sort of take mm-hmm. it and f- fix it together. All right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the book you picked as one of your uh, favorite kids' books is called "The Grand Plan to Fix Everything." It was written by Uma Krishna Swami. Uh, right. It was published in 2011 by. Uh, Anthenium books for young readers. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time I had a chance to read it. Uh, for other readers who, who um, may not be familiar with the book or haven't had a chance to read it, can you give us a, a rough idea of what it's about? <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm so glad, first of all, that I got to introduce you to this book. Uh, it's about Denny, who is an 11 year old girl who um, is suddenly transplanted to India. And with her, her mother gets a, a, a two year job there and her her parents are actually Indian. And so and she's got relatives in India and Denny herself is Indian, but she largely grew up in the States. And so she gets moved to um, to a small village in India. And um, it, and the, the thing to know about Denny is that she's just crazy about Bollywood movies and in particular one star one movie star named Dolly Singh and um, Dolly Singh has mysteriously vanished from the scene and um, and Denny when she's forced to move has made it her mission to find out what has happened to Dolly Singh I guess that's an, a nutshell kind of uh, kind of kind of answer yeah. when did you uh, first encounter this book or come across it I actually encountered it as a um, a, a manuscript because I I know I know Uma Uma and I are colleagues we teach together at Vermont College of Fine Arts and I didn't choose this book because you know because I know Uma I chose it because I just love this book but but yes I saw it in manuscript form originally and then I saw it right after it was released so 
So I have a history with it, I guess. <laughs> now, the like you said, the main character is uh, Dini, and we spend most of our time with her, not exclusively. Uh, right. So, so what is it about her character, as her as a character, uh, that makes her somebody that we really do want to spend, uh, you know, um, this time as we're reading the book? I just appreciate her yearning, you know, her um, her deep ability to to you know to to want something but also i i really love just her um her panache you know she's she's willing to go the ninth to the ninth degree or the nth degree i guess i guess it's not ninth it's nth but um i think overall what i love about this book is the esprit and i think that's indicative of bollywood um you know there's a kind of esprit in Bollywood movies, and um, they're they're upbeat for the lo- the most part, and um, I mean not all of them, of course, but but there's this, there's just this like active ra- rapid motion um, about it, but underlying the whole thing for me is is just a sense of joyfulness, and um, and I think we need that these days is some joy, so yeah yeah I love Denny. <laughs> As you mentioned, uh, the, uh, Bollywood is a big part of this book. Her, Denny and both her friend uh, are, are obsessed with uh, both Bollywood movies and mm-hmm. particularly the star Dolly. And uh, and Denny, in fact, sees the world when she sort of looks world around her. She looks at it like a movie that she's writing and directing and producing and starring in. And when I kept exactly. yeah, when I was reading it, I kept picturing it almost as a movie myself. I don't know if you had the same experience that uh, this is a sort of we're reading about a movie that's going on in Denny's head. <laughs> Absolutely. It's almost metafictional in that way. You know, um, to, it, it, it is about a Bollywood, it's about looking for a Bollywood st- star. Um, the characters are obsessed with Bollywood and the book itself feels like a Bollywood movie. And so Bollywood itself is like a subtext, right? It, it, it lifts the book up and um, to me, that's part of the genius of it is that kind of layering that you see that is going on throughout the story where you're it's like you're inside a Bollywood movie that is considering a Bollywood movie and starring a Bollywood star <laughs> and featuring the fans and all the mishaps and the um, even the music plays a large part in the story. <laughs> And and you want to talk about landscape? I mean, this book is definitely the setting plays a large role. I mean, you know, the the name of the village is is Swapnagiri, which means dream mountain, and so it is this kind of dream. There's this dreaminess that that flows through the whole thing that is largely created by the wonderful landscape. <laughs> Now, like a like a lot of movies and of books as well, there's a lot of supporting characters who come and go. But they, what's interesting in this book is a lot of them have their own little story arcs as well. You know, it's sort of a, a beginning, middle, and end, even their own little stories. I didn't know if was there a particular a character set of characters whose story arc, apart from Denny's, you really just enjoyed reading about as well. Uh, well, I. I would say I enjoyed all of them. I I was intrigued by Priya. You know, she to me was a bit of a mystery. Um, she she's there with her uncle, and there's you don't get tons of information about her parents. And she's got this talent, right, of making bird 
bird sounds <laughs> or animal sounds, um, which I think really sets her apart. And you know, one of the uh, wonders of the of the book too is this is this kind of close in look at friendship and and what friendship can take and what it can't and um you know and the risk that you take when you're apart from friends and 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 so you know i think priya is a a character that kind of um you know she she presents a challenge but also an opportunity and so so i i appreciated that because it it is in a way kind of a, a love triangle going on there and that's so typical of of uh, kids at that age, you know, trying to test out the limits of their friendship and um, at the same time longing for that closeness. Um, so um, so I think I think the book does a great job of, of looking at that. It's also about, uh, in a way, of, of trying to maintain a friendship over a long distance, the friendship between Denny and Maddie. And I'm wondering if there's... Uh, for kids reading this, if there's something they could learn about the way they, the two of them sort of negotiate this, that, you know, of friends who aren't there anymore, but they still want to still be friends in a way and, and how they might go about doing that. Right. Well, it comes down to trust, doesn't it? I mean, that's to me what it comes down to is trust because Denny has to, she has to trust Maddie. You know, when Maddie says that, towards the end that she she actually asked any permission to go to a different friend's house for a sleepover and you know Denny wrestles wrestles with that she it's kind of a dark moment for her when she's um you know she's because because there's that possibility that you know she's when she gets back that Maddie will have will have found a, a different friend to to replace her and so she has to trust that she and Maddie have a history, a, a sturdy enough history and an understanding of each other that, that that understanding is strong enough that she can she can allow that. And, it, and it's not like like Maddie wasn't going to go on the sleepover, even if Denny said no. But it's it's for Denny, you know, that kind of searching, that kind of realization that she has to she has to rely on some trust and and so you know i i think i think there's something to be said for that and and for anybody in that situation to to see that you know just because your friend has another friend it doesn't mean that's the end of your friendship and i think priya again illustrates you know the way uh another a new friend can actually illuminate the friendships that that are existing um so yeah, so I I really I really love that part of the story. I think that's the heart of the story, actually. Well, one thing that struck me when I was reading this book is, and I think you touched upon this, is this sort of very light and sort of whimsical tone that's maintained throughout the whole book, and it's actually a very difficult thing to pull off successfully. And I'm wondering if what could other writers learn uh, from what um, she does in this book to maintain that tone without it becoming overwhelming or just going, you know, becoming unbelievable or, you know what I mean? Right. I think one of the uh, coups that, that Uma successfully pulled off was that this book could have been so silly 
You know, I mean, there's a very fine, there's a very thin edge between really silly, you know, where you, you're you like, okay, well, that was cute, you know, when you finish reading it. But this, this is, is light. It's got a, it's got a light heart to it. But at the same time, it's got this depth underneath it. And so that is the, that is, I think the, uh, you know, the wonder of this book too, is that she was able to achieve that kind of sturdy balance that otherwise it would have just been, could have so easily been thought of as like melodrama, you know, where the hero is, you know, putting her, the back of her hand over her eyes, you know, um, or tying, tying the heroine to, to the railroad tracks or something like that. I mean, it, it could have so easily been melodrama and it's not, it's, it's better than that. It's way better than that. It's, you know, it's got some, it's got this sweetness, this, this total line of sweetness that runs from the beginning to the end. And characters that you care about. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Even Dolly who, you know, it's hard to care about her for a while there, (laughs) you know, and you don't totally care you know about her at the end i mean because she is a prima donna and i think it would have been it would have been too much if she if she wasn't (laughs) you know i mean it would have it wouldn't have been the same kind of story if she turned out to be this uh this wonderful warm giving person that that she actually isn't so um yeah i mean she's you know she's oblivious to other people and you know the world around her and the way she loses things and (laughs) now as i've mentioned the title of this is the grand plan to fix everything and you know spoiler alert that's exactly what happens and everybody ends up happier or mostly happier than they were at the beginning and and obviously life doesn't always work out this way but i'm just wondering what's the value of books like this with this um this sort of approach to readers who obviously have lives who are going to be a bit messier than this, where things don't always turn out so well. So what is the value of books like that, that, um, that have that happy ending for us? Well, I think it's important to, um, you know, to, to have a happy ending now and then, um, obviously, you know, life, you're right. Life doesn't always end up with all the, all the knots tied, tied up or the bows tied or however you want to say it. But, um, but you know, in this book, you have to confess that there's a lot of messiness before the happy ending. You know, there a lot of things could go wrong, terribly wrong. And one of the things that Uma is very clear about, you know, throughout the story is the role of fate, you know, kismet. Um, you know, there's, there were a lot of things that just happened to be there in the right place. And in our lives, you know, we've all had that experience of going, oh, my gosh, that's a sign, you know, or something will happen. And it's totally, totally coincidental. But because it happens when it happens at the place where it happens at the time that it happens, it feels like fate. You know, it feels like, oh, this is the way it should be. And so, you know, I think we're all kind of at the mercy of that in a way. And, um, and so, you know, so often with stories, we, we put such a large burden on the, on the main character to solve all the problems, you know, to take care of things, even in the face of um, what sometimes seems like insurmountable odds. And yet, um, you know, often the universe is just generous, right? <laughs> and I think there's something to be said for that, for, for saying that, you know what, sometimes 
you know, sometimes it just works out and, and we have to allow for that. And there's no real explanation for it. There's no real, um, you know, excuse for it even. It's just, it's just what it is. And, um, and I, I love that because that's the way life is. It, we do have these moments where kismet occurs and, and it's, it's wonderful when it does, especially when it happens in a positive way. I mean, it could go either way. Right. But, um, yeah, so I think there's value in that in knowing that, um, you know, for all of us that sometimes the universe is on our side and who's to say that, you know, that there's not some kind of force behind it. It's hard to say, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to get into that. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, I love that, that I think, I think, uh, the universe can be generous and, um, and I, and I do believe that. Sometimes there is a happy ending. Yes, sometimes there is a happy ending. And we need happy endings these days. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, is there a particular uh, passage from the book that you'd like to share? Yeah, there is. So glad you asked. <laughs> okay, it's on page 230. And it's the just the opening part of uh, chapter 42. It's called The Sound of an Aching Heart. So I'm not going to give any background. I'm just going to read it straight through. <laughs> the rest of the day passes quickly as happy days will. The next day, too, looks as if it is getting ready for happiness. Purpley flowers are blooming along the side of the road. The sky is a super fine china blue. The leaves on the tea bushes sport a cheerful gloss. Anyone would think that this day is a dream come true. Only one thing spoils it. The new battery that Viron brought to Mr. Chiku Dev's house and installed just this morning has not laid that terrible rattle to rest. All the way from Sunny Villa Estates and up the length of Blue Mountain Road on this test drive with Chiku Uncle at the wheel, the ugly rattle makes it impossible for anyone in the car to hear the birds singing, the cows mooing, or even the purry little engine of the just-out-of-warranty yellow electric car. Clinkety, plinkety goes the noise. What a racket, Chiku Uncle says between clenched teeth. It's going to drive me out of my mind. Clunkety, bunkety, dunkety goes the noise. Chiku Uncle's shoulders droop. I, I don't understand you, he says miserably, and it is evident that he is speaking to the car. Viren is a good mechanic, certified in all. He's torn out your engine and put it back again. Fuses, motor, motor controller, and new batteries. Why, why, why? The car only rattles in reply. It's not singing anymore, is it, Denny says? No, says Chiku Dev. It stopped singing a few days ago. Now it only rattles. Denny can see right away that Mr. Chiku Dev is not normally a tooth-clenching, shoulder-drooping kind of guy, but she can also see that he really loves this car. It's hard when you love two things equally well, and you have to choose between them. Chiku Uncle is so sad that Denny begins to wilt in sympathy. Around them, traffic thickens as they get to the busy part of Blue Mountain Road. Suddenly, someone standing next to a white van waves at them. Chiku Uncle breaks and eases to a stop on the side of the road. Hello, Mr. Chiku Dev, Miss Nandini, Miss Priya, says a familiar voice. It is Viren. His mustache has gained extra fine points on the ends. 
Viren has news. A big film studio executive, he says, has come to Swapnagiri to meet Miss Dolly. I'm taking him there right now. Chiku Uncle dabs at his forehead with a big white handkerchief, even though it's nice and cool. Denny sees that he is flustered at hearing Dolly's name. That is what love can do. <laughs> anyway, I just love, I mean, I just love the whole thing. I mean, even and, and there's, you know, these little throwaway lines in here where, you know, at the, at one point, uh, Uma writes, it's hard when you love two things equally well and you have to choose between them. I mean, in a way that's kind of, you know, the whole message of the book. So, um, so yeah, yeah. Thank you for letting me read that. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the first, I had a chance to read it, but to hear it is, is, and hearing just the sort of play with words that is done in the book is very neat to hear as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, you know, her, her use of descriptors, you know, the sky is, the day is all purpley with happiness. I <laughs> just, you know, things like that just works out so well. It's a pleasure to read. <laughs> oh, it, it, is, it is a fun read. Uh, well, Kathy, uh, thank you so much for picking this book, which gave me a chance to read it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. You can find Kathy's website at www.kathyappel.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>